Section 29 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller Translated by James Burton Robertson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Subheading 23 The Doctrine of Purgatory in its Connection with the Catholic Doctrine of Justification The doctrine of the possibility of the fulfillment of the law, touched on in the last section, must now be treated more fully and minutely. The conflicting doctrines are of such importance as to deserve a more precise statement of the arguments on either side. Calvin says, quote, Never hath a man, not even one, regenerated in the faith in Christ, wrought a morally good work, a work which, if it were strictly judged, would not be damnable, unquote. Admitting even this impossibility to be possible, yet the author of such an action would still appear impure and polluted by reason of his other sins. It is not the outward show of works, which perhaps in their external character may satisfy the moral law, but it is the purity of the will, which is regarded by God. Now if we but raise our eyes to the judgment seat of the Almighty, who will venture to stand before it? It is, therefore, evident that the doctrine of an internal justification involving the necessity of the fulfillment of the law is reprehensible, because it must precipitate troubled consciences into despair. In reply to this, the Catholic observes, either it is possible for man strengthened and exalted by the divine aid to observe the moral law and its spirit, its true inward essence, or it is impossible to do so. If the former be the case, then, undoubtedly, such observance cannot be too strongly urged, and everyone may find proof for its possibility in the fact that, on every transgression of the law, he accuses himself as a sinner. For every accusation of such a kind involves the supposition that its fulfillment is possible, and even with assistance from above, not difficult. But, if the latter be the case, then the case must be sought for only in God, and in such a way that either the Almighty hath not framed human nature for the attainment of that moral standard which he proposes to it, or he doth not impart those higher powers, which are necessary to the pure, and not merely outward, but internal, compliance with his laws. In both cases, the cause of the non-fulfillment lies in the divine will. That is to say, God is represented as not willing that his will should be complied with, which is self-contradictory. But, in any case, there could be no conceivable guilt in respect to this non-obedience to the law, and, accordingly, there could be, notwithstanding, the non-observance of the divine precepts, no obstacle to the attainment of eternal felicity. If it be urged that reference is had exclusively to man's fallen nature, which is in a state of incapacity for the fulfillment of the law, we may reply that God, in Christ Jesus, hath raised us from this fall. And it was justly observed by the Council of Trent, that, in virtue of the power of Christ's Spirit, no precept was impracticable to man. For to the heritage of corruption, a heritage of spiritual power in Christ hath been opposed, and the latter can in every way be victorious over the former. Or do we believe the moral law to have been framed merely for the nature of Adam, for his brief abode in paradise, and not for the thousands of years that humanity was to endure? In modern times, 
some men have endeavored to come to the aid of the old orthodox lutheran doctrine by assuring us that the moral law proposes to men an ideal standard which like everything ideal necessarily remains unattained if such really be the case with the moral law then he who comes not up to it can as little incur responsibility as an epic poet for not equaling homer's iliad more intellectual at least is the theory that the higher a man stands on the scale of morality the more exalted are the claims which the moral law exacts of him so that they increase as it were to infinity with the internal growth of man and leave him ever behind them when we contemplate the lives of the saints the contrary phenomenon will arise to view the consciousness of being in the possession of an all-sufficing infinite power ever discloses the tenderer and nobler relations of man to god and to his fellow creatures so that man sanctified in christ and filled with his spirit ever feels himself superior to the law it is the nature of heaven-born love which stands so far so infinitely far above the claims of the mere law never to be content with its own doings and ever to be more ingenious in its devices so that christians of this stamp not unfrequently appear to men of a lower grade of perfection as enthusiasts men of heated fancy and distempered mind it is only in this way that remarkable doctrine can be satisfactorily explained which certainly like every other that hath for centuries existed in the world and seriously engaged the human mind is sure to rest on some deep foundation the doctrine namely that there can be works which are more than sufficient opera superrogationis a doctrine the tenderness and delicacy whereof eluded indeed the perception of the reformers for they could not even once rise above the idea that man could ever become free from immodesty unjust wrath avarice and the rest the doctrine in question indeed on which the council of trent does not enter into detail in proportion as the principle whereon it is based is more exalted is on that account more open to gross misrepresentation especially if as the reformers were prudent enough to do we look to the mere outward arbitrary actions quite untenable is the appeal to experience that no one can boast of having himself fulfilled the law but the assertion that the question is not as to the possibility but the reality of such a fulfillment in the first place no argument can be deduced from reality because we are not even capable of looking into it and we must not and cannot judge of the hearts of men we are not even capable of judging ourselves and therefore st paul saith quote, he is conscious to himself of nothing but he leaveth judgment to the lord unquote. accordingly the desire to determine the limits of our power in christ by the reality of everyday life would lead to the worst conceivable system of ethics once regulate the practicable by the measure of ordinary experience and you will at once see the low reality sink down to a grade still lower lastly this view alleges no deeper reason for what it calls reality and we learn not why this hath been so and not otherwise so that we must either recur to the first or the second mode of defending the orthodox protestant view or seek out a new one calvin commands us to raise our eyes to the judgment seat of god in truth nothing is more fit to avert the sinner from himself and to turn him to christ 
than calling to mind the general judgment, not merely that which the history of the world pronounces, but that which the all-wise, holy, and righteous God doth hold. Woe to him who hath not turned to Christ, but woe likewise to him whom the blood of Christ hath not really cleansed, whom the living communion with the God-man himself hath not rendered godly. Can our adversaries even imagine that the elect are still stained with sin before the judgment seat of God, and that Christ covers them over, and under this covering conducts them into heaven? It is the most consummate contradiction of talk of entering into heaven while stained with sin, be it covered or uncovered. Hence the question recurs, how shall man be finally delivered from sin, and how shall holiness in him be restored to thorough life? Or, in case we leave this earthly world, still bearing about us some stains of sin, how shall we be purified from them? Shall it be by the mechanical deliverance from the body, whereof the Protestant formularies speak so much? But it is not easy to discover how, when the body is laid aside, sin is therefore purged out from the sinful spirit. It is only one who rejects the principle of moral freedom in sin, or who hath been led astray by Gnostic or Manichean errors, that could look with favor upon a doctrine of this kind? Or are we to imagine it to be some important word of the divinity, or some violent mechanical process, whereby purification ensues, some sudden magical change the Protestant doctrine unconsciously presupposes, and this phenomenon is not astonishing, since it teaches that by original sin the mind had been deprived of a certain portion and that in regeneration man is completely passive. But the Catholic, who cannot regard man other than as a free independent agent, must also recognize this free agency in his final purification, and repudiate such a sort of mechanical process as incompatible with the whole moral government of the world. If God were to employ an economy of this nature, then Christ came in vain, Therefore is our church forced to maintain such a doctrine of justification in Christ and of a moral conduct in this life regulated by it, that Christ will, at the day of judgment, have fulfilled the claims of the law outwardly for us, but on that account inwardly in us. The solace accordingly is to be found in the power of Christ, which effaces as well as forgives sin. Yet, in a twofold way, among some, it consummates purification in this life. Among others, it perfects it only in the life to come. The latter are they who by faith, love, and a sincere penitential feeling have knit the bond of communion with Christ, but only in a partial degree, and at the moment they quitted the regions of the living were not entirely pervaded by his spirit. To them will be communicated this saving power that at the day of judgment they may also be found pure in Christ. Thus, the doctrine of a place of purification is closely connected with the Catholic theory of justification, which, without the former, would doubtless be, to many, a disconsonant tenet. But this inward justification none can be dispensed from. The fulfillment of the law, painful as it undoubtedly is, can be remitted to none, on each one must the holy law be inwardly and outwardly stamped. The Protestants, on the other hand, who, with their wonted arrogance, have rejected the dogma of purgatory, so well founded as it is in tradition, 
saw themselves thereby compelled, in order to afford solace to man, to speak of an impossibility of fulfilling the law. A thought which is confuted in every page of scripture, and involves the Almighty in contradiction with himself. They saw themselves compelled to put forth a theory of justifying faith, which cannot even be clearly conceived. Lastly, they saw themselves compelled to adopt, tacitly at least, the idea of a mechanical course of operations practiced on man after death, new authoritative decrees of the deity, and left unexplained how a deep-rooted sinfulness, even when forgiven, could be at last totally eradicated from the spirit. Thus do both communions offer a solace to man, but in ways totally opposite, the one in harmony with holy writ, which everywhere presupposes the possibility of the observance of the law, the other in most striking contradiction to it, one in maintaining the whole rigor of the ethical code, the other by a grievous violation of it, one in accordance with the free and gradual development of the human mind, which only with a holy earnestness and by great exertions can bring forth and cultivate to maturity the divine seed once received, the other without regard to the eternal laws of the human spirit, and by a very guilty encouragement to moral levity. End of section 29